once again to America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. So we're continuing our tour of the Ivy League today. And in fact, we spent our last episode in my longtime hometown area of Princeton uh, addressing Princeton's past, particularly with its uh, favorite son, James Madison. Uh, today we'll be talking, uh, we'll be turning to Princeton's present and some of the pride of Princeton University's faculty. But uh, as long as we're speaking about the Ivy League, we should take a moment to note happily a great honor that's been bestowed upon an eminent member of another of the Ancient Eights members, that's Columbia, um, Professor Philip Bobbitt, who, uh, by the way, is actually a Princeton alum, um, as well as a graduate of the Yale Law School. Um, and as you know, he was a memorable guest of America's Constitution when we were discussing impeachment. He's just been named an honorary knight commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire. Um, so this, uh, the official statement says this honorary knighthood was awarded in recognition of Professor Bobbitt's, quote, services to UK slash US relations and public life, unquote. So this is an honorary knighthood. I think that's because you have to be a British citizen to receive a non-honorary knighthood. Um, so anyway, it's particularly appropriate and perhaps not a coincidence that this is taking place now. Um, as we record this, uh, President Biden is on British soil. He's preparing to sign uh, a new Atlantic Charter, which is a reaffirmation of the special relationship between the two great Atlantic nations of the United States and the United Kingdom. And of course, in this podcast, we pay great attention to this relationship, particularly from a time when it might have been special, but not perhaps as friendly as, as what we're used to. Um, and Akhil, you have a nice story about that, which uh, features your son and, and your dear friend, Professor Bobbitt. So perhaps you'd like to share that along with the tribute that you've prepared for, uh, for Professor Bobbitt, which will be used in various press releases. Uh, thanks, Andy. He is indeed a dear friend, and he and I will be co-teaching together this fall at Yale Law School. We've co-taught together probably 10 or 12 times over the years, sometimes at Columbia Law School, sometimes at Yale Law School. I'm actually godparent to his kids, and uh, and he's very specially acknowledged um, in uh, at the end of... Uh, the words that made us the new book because his geostrategic vision of constitutionalism has profoundly influenced my own understanding of the U.S. Constitution. Um, and, uh, and his books have also been a huge influence on me above and beyond his, 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 the, the many years of, of, of uh, conversation and, um, and, and uh, uh, pedagogic collaboration in the classroom. Um, so, yeah, I did compose a, a little um, uh, uh, tribute to him. The um, official announcement um, uh, over in England featured uh, um, encomia from attributes from, uh, among others, uh, Tony Blair, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton, uh, and Henry Kissinger. Uh, and uh, I added my own uh, uh, little um, uh, uh, tribute for, for possible use um, here in America, and here's what, I, here's what I wrote. Many years ago, my then five-year-old son asked me when the Americans and the British became friends. It was a question both delightful and profound, 
and my answer back then built on things that my own dear friend, Philip Bobbitt, had taught me over the course of many years of gentle conversation. The friendship between America and Britain, I told my son, began many centuries ago when mainland American colonies considered themselves proud and loyal British subjects. Even when Americans broke from Britain, they did so in the name of deeply British ideas, and the constitutional order they founded was rooted in British history and British common law understandings, even as the Americans also added their own distinct and thrilling ideas. In the 20th century, the special relationship between the two nations deepened, I told my son. Today, my son is in college studying world history. Were he to re-ask his question to me, I would now add a happy coda to my earlier answer. The special relationship between America and Britain remains crucial, and the honor that our family friend Philip has received is a glorious embodiment of that special bond. Uh, And by the way, that last sentence, when I talked about the honor that our family friend Philip has received, I spell it H-O-N-O parenthesis U-R. So so both the British and the American um, way. Um, And the the backstory to that uh, little tribute um, involves actually someone that I came to know and um, whom I've already uh, mentioned, uh, thanks to Philip, uh, Tony Blair, who I think history will remember very well um, uh, uh, um, in future generations, uh, uh, came, uh, 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 spent time as a visiting scholar at, at Yale um, in the Jackson Center, I, I believe. And, and he gave a talk at, at the, in the law school auditorium, and I approached him afterwards and just uh, um, uh, thanked him for um, uh, his uh, uh, willingness to spend time with us at Yale, and he was obviously very polite. He's a, he's a, poli- a very gifted politician. Um, but um, it was just a, a kind of your standard exchange. And then I said, you know, I think we have actually a, a friend in common in Philip Bobbitt. And oh my God, the, just the, the syllables, Philip Bobbitt, they were the open sesame. And, and, and Tony Blair's countenance, you know, c- completely changed from, from fo- uh, formal to informal, and he started beaming. He says, oh, well, any friend of Philip's is a friend of mine. And, and last Christmas, he actually he, he, he spent the holidays with, with us. And, and, and oh, from then on, I could, I could do no wrong. You know, to Tony Blair, I, I, was, I was okay in Tony Blair's book. And, and I introduced my son to him, um, who was um, uh, um, then about... 12 or so, and I actually told, asked, told Tony this story about how my son had asked me at age five um, uh, when the British um, had become our friends, um, and actually there's a picture that we took that, that day, and we'll, we'll put it up on the, on the website. It's a cute picture. Um, Vic was then about 10 or 12. Um, I'm telling Tony a story about Vic at age five, um, and, and it all is fitting because um, I, uh, today, to, to mention this to our audience, because I'm um, connecting it to this wonderful event, this honorary knighthood um, for Philip. I may have told this story in an earlier episode, but I'm going to tell it again here about why Vic asked me this question at age five, because it's about what this podcast is all about, which is... Um, um, civic education for um, our fellow Americans. That's, that's what the book, the, um, uh, the, the Words That Made Us, is all about, um, a national narrative. Um, uh, uh, because that's what, what we have in common as Americans, is our constitution and our system of government. We don't have race in common, or religion in common, or even language. Many of us are non-native speakers. We have our constitution and our constitutional story, 
our national narrative. So why did Vic, and we talked from the very first episodes about how central presidential, uh, the presidency is to the American Constitution and presidential elections in particular. They're constitutional decisions that need to be made by ordinary citizens every four years. And if you get them wrong, as I think and you think um, Americans got it wrong on Trump, that has huge consequences. Okay. Um, so, uh, um, and as you know, the, one of the big themes of the words that made us is the centrality of the presidency, how uh, much more powerful the presidency is in the federal constitution than state governorships uh, were in the existing state constitutions in 1787-88. So why did Vic ask me um, at age five um, when the British became our friends? He asked me that because I had urged him to learn his precedence. By the age of seven or eight, I, I could list the precedents by name and I knew a little bit about each one. Um, and uh, and um, at the time, by the way, the sitting president was named Lyndon Johnson, who also happens to be Philip Bob's uncle, um, his mother's uh, brother, uh, in the small world department. So, but I had learned my presence by age seven or eight, and Vic had learned them at age five, and he had learned a little about them. And here's the point: if you know a little bit about each of the pres, if you know all the presents and a little bit about them, you have at your fingertips, the spine of American history and even a little bit of a grasp of world history. So here's what Vic said. I said, Vic, very interesting question. When did the British become our friends? Why are you asking me this? Remember, he's five years old. He said, Dad, George Washington fought against the British and Dwight Eisenhower fought alongside the British. So sometime in between, they must have become our friends. So, wow, Vic is asking a pretty historically sophisticated question because he's learned his precedents, he knows the order, and he knows a little bit about them. And there was yet another, I think, interesting um, insight that this little five-year-old um, you know, uh, had. Um, he's already trying to make sense of the world and, and identify patterns. Yes, Dwight Eisenhower was a president in the tradition of Washington, Last time we talked about how I'm always looking for patterns. Ivy League is, is one pattern. There are many patterns. But there have been certain presidents, especially in the tradition of Washington, and, and the, the, the other two who are most like Washington are the two-term, uh, national unifying um, commanders-in-chief, presidents above party, so to speak, in the Washington tradition, tradition and they're Ulysses S. Grant and Dwight Eisenhower. And today... Um, it, the, the person who would be most like that might be someone like Colin Powell. Some people thought David Petraeus might be um, a figure in, in, in that uh, uh, tradition as well. But Vic at age five is already beginning to see, oh, there are ways in which Dwight Eisenhower is kind of like George Washington. And he's right about that. And most Americans, as we talked about before, know more about baseball or football. They, we could talk about classic center fielders or classic quarterbacks. Um, but we can't. But they wouldn't be able to converse as intelligently about different kinds of presidents and, and the patterns they fit into. And of course, uh, the other thing about Washington is he also had this notion that uh, countries who are your enemies could become your friends, and vice versa. And this was, you know, one of the one of the themes of one of his more important uh, addresses. Absolutely. So. Now we're going to uh, transition to talking about uh, Princeton today, having spoken about Princeton past in the last episode. 
And Akil, I know you have quite a lot to say about uh, one of the real shining lights among uh, the Princeton faculty today. Let's talk about the great Princeton scholar, Sean Wilentz, um, who is a friend of mine. He actually was a graduate of, of Yale um, uh, hist- uh, uh, graduate school in history. I think his undergrad was Columbia. So again, it's like a multiple Ivy League story, Princeton and Yale, uh, Columbia. But, but I think he's preeminently associated with Princeton, which is where he's taught for many years. And I respect him greatly. Um, and like him personally, we've actually been, done things together, debates and, and other things. Um, but I think they've been very friendly debates. Um, we've jousted with each other um, in in the editorial pages, uh, the op-ed pages of, um, now I guess they're called guest column pages, of the New York Times. Um, uh, but we've done so, I think, in, in respectful ways. Um, I um, heard through the grapevine a rumor that he may be reviewing um, my book for the New York Review of Books. Um, uh, and I don't want to sort of um, taint the jury pool or anything, but I'll t- say honestly where I agree with um, Sean and, and disagree with Sean. So on one important thing, um, I'm absolutely as one with Sean Willens. Um, and it's going to be about the 1619 project that we talked about in our last episode on Harvard Huey. And on three other issues, one about slavery in the Constitution generally, um, one about slavery and its particular connection to the Electoral College. I believe there is a connection. Sean tends to downplay it. Um, and one about um, what Andrew Jackson actually said in his veto message about the Bank of the United States, taking us back to McCulloch. On three particular issues, um, I find myself um, in respectful disagreement with uh, Sean. And, of course, we're going to be inviting him to come uh, to the podcast if, if in a future um, episode if he wants to, to talk about these issues and anything else. The same way that in our last episode, uh, I criticized, but, um, but I hope respectfully, and we invited to come onto the podcast, um, um, eminent Harvard scholars uh, such as Jill Lepore, Noah Feldman, um, Mike Klarman, and Kenneth Mack. So um, on to Wilentz. Yes, and just a comment because uh, you know you mentioned that uh, you know you're in agreement with him on on sixteen nineteen, and we discussed that last time. So I assume you're not going to go over it in detail, you know, this time. But I, I think it's important to mention it because when he joins the letter with Gordon Wood, uh, J- uh, Jim, Jim McPherson, um, James Oakes, etc. And McPherson is a Princeton guy, and, um, and, and Wood, as we talked about, is um, a Harvard-trained and, and, a, and a Brown uh, emeritus professor. Yeah, so when he does that, the, his, what he's getting at there is that it matters uh, whether it's true or not, whether, whether the claims by Nicole Hannah-Jones are valid and based on the scholarship of, of Jill Lepore, and um, as we discussed last time, so it matters whether or not it's right. So therefore, uh, as a scholar that takes that position uh, correctly, I believe, that it certainly he would welcome you know, the determination or the discussion of whether these other claims that he makes are right or wrong. And I, think he, I think he would, but before I you know, respectfully critique him, I really do want to take my hat off to him in two ways. One, for uh, spearheading um, this critique of this core 1619 claim that 
the Americans revolted primarily to protect slavery, which the British were going to abolish. Which the British weren't going to abolish slavery, and that's not why the Americans, you know, mainly revolted. And he took the lead in saying that's not true. Um, uh, and joined by um, his Princeton colleague um, Jim McPherson and the eminent Gordon Wood and and Jim Oakes, and he he's taken and and I agree with him. It's not true, and the facts are on his side, and he's an expert on this, and so are the others, and they're people I respect, and they've taken massive hits from the far left on this. Um, the New York Times actually didn't want to admit it made a mistake because people don't like to admit they make a mistake even when they make a mistake, just like James Madison, you know, or, or, or Mike Pence. So, so same problem. And if I've made a mistake, I'm going to want to admit it and I'll try to put it on my website because that's what scholars do. Um, so, but I want to give um, Sean a huge shout out because he probably took, the, I think, the lead in this of all of them. He was actually the, 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 the uh, organizer, and he's taken um, a lot of criticism, uh, much of it, in my view, unfair, and, you know, uh, white men privilege this, and just all sorts of um, uh, ridiculous um, stuff. Well, but also, um, I think, you know, right now, as we record this, and we're going to be broadcasting this a few days after we record it, um, it's, it, it, the importance of it is is evident, and it's important that we keep talking about it, because... Right now, there's a controversy at the University of North Carolina where the author of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, was offered a position. That's her alma mater. And uh, the position um, might or might not have included tenure. And it came before the trust Board of Trustees um, of this university, and they voted to, to deny her tenure. And one of the reasons that, that they did so, evidently, well, we don't know, okay, but um, it, it may have centered around the actual content of her scholarship. That would seem like a reasonable thing to consider. And the, there's been a lot of backlash about this uh, for two reasons, I think. One is a question of the proper role of the trustees. We could talk about that in a moment. But the other is the, is the question of the accuracy of the scholarship. And, you know, you, we see now that the discussion in the public sphere is more, uh, assumes that this is a racist uh, act on the part of the trustees. And the reasoning there assumes that her scholarship was correct, okay, that, that, her, that she's w worthy of tenure on the basis of her scholarship. So it matters whether or not the scholarship is correct. And frankly, I, I think the discussion is a little off in the public sphere because it isn't a discussion about whether or not it's correct. They're just assuming it's correct. And if one says it's not correct, then one must be racially uh, motivated. So, you know, good for Sean Wilentz for standing up here. Now, he actually, along with Professor Keith Whittington uh, of Princeton, who is also going to be on our podcast at some point, um, have pushed back a little bit to the, to the trustees saying that, their role is inappropriate here, that it's it's up to the faculty and so forth. And, you know, I think this question about the role of, of trustees at universities is interesting and one that we're going to discuss in a later episode when we talk about Yale's constitution and the role of the Yale trustees. So back to back to this. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. Um, uh, our audience should know that you were actually running to be a, a trustee at Yale, and uh, uh, that's generate. And then Yale tried to change the rules um, uh, in the middle of the game. Uh, and 
who knows whether that's over the Yale Faculty Senate has pushed back very strongly against this, and so have you publicly, and the press national, as well as the, the, the Yale press, the Yale Daily News, have really focused on this. So yes, we're going to have another episode on constitutions of universities um, and the role of trustees, and, and, and you're going to be the expert on that. And we'll bring on Keith Whittington, who's already agreed to be on the podcast. He's an eminent professor at, yes, Princeton. Um, uh, um, and he and Sean, uh, so Keith has already agreed to do that. And he'll talk about free speech and other things as well in the tradition of, uh, of Floyd Abrams and Nadine Strawson and Alan Dershowitz, who have been uh, on the podcast previously. Um, and he's actually worked um, with you um, as a faculty member in it to something that, that bears a certain um, similarity to Everscholar. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but um, Willens and Whittington both publicly said, we're critics of Nicole Hannah-Jones scholarship, but we think actually trustees shouldn't be doing this. It should be a faculty decision. No, I'm not sure that's always the case, truthfully. This is about internal governance. And, and the problem with uh, uh, Hannah-Jones's piece isn't just that it maybe was wrong, but that when it was brought to her attention that it really was wrong. She didn't want to back down. And, and I understand why politicians do, uh, don't want to back down, but um, journalists have to back down when their facts are wrong. And scholars absolutely have to do when presented with um, compelling refutation. That's what it means to be a scholar. And it's never, you know, um, uh, um, you know, a, a fun thing to do to, to eat crow, um, but you have to do it. That's, that defines the scientific method and, and, and the, the scholarly vision. Um, uh, uh, so, um, so I'm not sure, actually, that the trustees were wrong. I would need to know a lot more. Um, uh, in general, I think, um, uh, but what, here's what's impressive about what Sean Willens and Keith Whittington did. They said, we on the merits are critical of, of this. Indeed, uh, Keith went so far as to say if he had been on the faculty, he would have voted against this. But... Um, they said, we don't think trustees should overrule faculty. And whatever else you say about that, this is, um, um, uh, Wilentz and, and Whittington are showing themselves to sort of be um, admirably um, uh, nuanced and, and, and uh, not polemical and, 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 and seeing the complexities here and, and good for them. Um, um, and as I said, we've uh, invited Keith to come on and he's already agreed. Um, today we're inviting Sean to come on. He can talk about that. He can talk about um, uh, um, the, the slavery issues where he and I, um, I think, have some, some disagreements. Um, if he has um, uh, read the book, he can talk about my book. He can, talk, he can talk about that, too. He can talk about anything that Sean wants us to talk about. So uh, the invitation is open. And now let's go back. And we will have a separate episode, Andy, you and I, about uh, the Constitution of Universities and, and Yale in particular, because that's where you're expert. Right. Um, but, but back now, so that was my big shout out to Willent where I agree with him on 1619 um, and therefore 1776, but I disagree with him about the Constitution, 1787, 88, and its relationship to slavery. I disagree with him about um, 1803, 1804, the 12th Amendment and its um, relationship 
to uh, slavery when the Electoral College is modified, and I disagree with him about stuff in the 1830s, and, and in particular what Andrew Jackson's veto message of the bank really did and didn't say. Uh, so those are the, my three respectful disagreements um, that I will now uh, try to quickly document. So let's start with the biggest one. Was the Constitution pro-slavery, neutral on slavery, or anti-slavery, net-net? Now remember, my claim and Sean Wilentz's claim is the American Revolution, independence, the Declaration of Independence, these things were not pro-slavery. 1776 was not pro-slavery. The Americans did not revolt primarily to protect slavery against the Brits who, it was it is claimed erroneously, we're going to get rid of slavery. That's not what happened. And my, uh, my claim further, and Sean agrees with me, or maybe I'm agreeing with him because he may have even seen this uh, uh, earlier than I did. I, I'd have to go back and check, or at least um, written about it. Um, immediately, even before independence, Americans have... Um, in, uh, have created an abolition society in Philadelphia. They're the first in the world to actually create a society to end all slavery. Not to free slaves, but to end all slavery. And that abolition society will eventually be presided over, that 1775 Philadelphia, by two people who signed the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin and, B and Benjamin Rush. And by 1780, Pennsylvania, um, uh, impelled by some of these very folks, um, in Philadelphia um, will adopt a statute providing for the gradual abolition of slavery. And uh, slavery is abolished in Massachusetts thanks to the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 as interpreted by the state Supreme Court in 1783. Um, and it, um, it's abolished um, and, and, and inspired by the likes of James Otis, whom we, we've talked about in previous episodes, who actually writes an anti-slavery pamphlet, anti-stamp tax and anti-slavery pamphlet in, 17, um, in the mid-1760s. Um, and uh, New Hampshire is going to get rid of slavery, um, and, uh, and, and uh, Connecticut and Rhode Island and eventually New York. So, so the American Revolution is not pro-slavery. What about the American Constitution a dozen years later? Um, I claim it is pro-slavery in its logic and structure and effect. It's going to lead to a quite a predictably um, uh, a, a, um, the, uh, the dominance of Andrew. It's going to lead to the ear of Andrew Jackson, who is who leads a pro-slavery party, which is the dominant political party in America from the founding to Abraham Lincoln. And I say the driving force of basically this pro-slavery um, uh, uh, constitution, the driving force is the three-fifths clause that gives slave states extra clout in the House of Representatives and the Electoral College. So that's the first big pro-slavery feature, and it's structurally pro-slavery. It's going to mean that every president um, prior to Lincoln is either a southern plantation owner or a northerner who basically plays footsie with the, with the, with the uh, slavocrats, who doesn't, um, no president before Lincoln calls for slavery's um, abolition even gradually. Um, no cabinet officer before Lincoln calls for slavery's abolition even gradually. 
um, as president and as a cabinet officer. Yeah, John Quincy Adams will become abolitionist, but only after he's left the presidency. As president, he needs to play footsie with the South, because that's where the electoral votes are, thanks to the three-fifths clause. His vice president, by way of reminder, is John C. Calhoun. Um, and John Adams' running mate, his father's running mate, um, um, in um, both 1796 and 1800 was a, a South Carolinian named Pinckney. Actually, not the same South Carolinian. They were brothers. Um, but um, so um, um, I say the three-fifths clause means that structurally the Constitution is pro-slavery and, pro, and it's going to lead to pro-slavery presidents who appoint pro-slavery justices to the Supreme Court, and that's going to lead to Andrew Jackson and Roger Taney and Dred Scott. That's the big pro-slavery feature of the Constitution. Relatedly, um, but less you know, significant, but importantly, the Fugitive Slave Clause is not neutral on slavery. It actually says that free states have to send um, escaping slaves back into slavery. That's not the international law baseline. That's not um, um, the, 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 the baseline, if the Constitution had been silent on this, would have been basically that northern states are allowed to apply their own free soil laws um, on their own jurisdiction. If someone escapes to Canada, Canada doesn't have to send a slave back. If someone escapes to, to Britain, Britain doesn't have to send a slave back into slavery. And that would have been the baseline um, based on an English case called Somerset's case, but for the Fugitive Slave Clause, which is in the Constitution that says northern states, in effect, have to be slave catchers for southern slave states. So those are my two big reasons for thinking structurally the Constitution is pro-slavery. Well, Enns is going to have a different position, and I'm going to articulate his different position in just a minute and tell you, you where I disagree. And not only is it uh, structurally... Um, favoring slavery in, in a kind of a theoretical way that the the uh, northerners that get elected have to kowtow to the south because they know that's where the electoral votes are. But actually, in fact, when Thomas Jefferson is elected, you know, we you can just lay out the electoral votes and but for the three-fifths bonus, he would have lost the election. Just so, and that's going to, you're already anticipating the second and specific point, which is slavery in connection to the Electoral College, which is where Sean and I have had some friendly debates, um, most prominently at the New York Historical Society a couple of years ago, and exchanges in the New York Times um, and elsewhere. So just so, and just to anticipate one possible um, reader reaction, um, they say, well, you know, slaves are only counting for three-fifths. Oh, that's a penalty. It should, you know, they're not counting the same as, as free folks, five-fifths. Now, of course, what would be the anti-slavery um, rule? Not, oh, they should count like everyone else. <laughs> that would be worse, okay, because slaves aren't voting, okay? So, so don't think, oh, they're counting as three-fifths of a human and two-fifths property, because if you say stuff like that, which I used to say when I was a student, see, but that's completely confused on my part, because... Um, question isn't where the slaves vote. Slaves never vote anywhere. The question is, how much extra clout do slave states get in the House of Representatives or in the Electoral College because they have slavery in their midst? And the principled anti-slavery argument is they should get zero. You should never get more seats in the House or the Electoral College because you have this nefarious evil practice. And you might say, well, you get extra clout if you have non-voting women or non-voting children, so why not for slaves? And the reason is because the voters are virtually representing the interests of their wives, their mothers, their daughters, their minor children. 
but slaveholders aren't virtually representing the interest of of the slaves. Slaveholders don't care about the interests of the slaves. They're, they're selling them at will. They're maiming them. That's not what it's about. They're just saying, we're entitled to extra clout because they're our property and property deserves protection. But only slave property got this special um, um, uh, extra representation. Not, um, for example, landed pro real estate landed property or um, um, uh, uh, liquid property, um, stocks and bonds, and and uh, uh, and uh, other forms of of, of capital. So, um, three fifths gave slave states extra clout, extra seats for having slaves, and it rewarded them. The more slaves they could buy or breed, bring over from Africa in a hellish um, uh, international slave trade, which Free-born people in Africa were kidnapped and killed, and then um, some, the ones that survived brought over in slave ships. Where again, many of them died in a in an absolutely brutal, hellish um, uh, 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 slave trade. And then they um, are sold on auction blocks and, and 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 separated from family members. And for allowing all that, indeed, encouraging all that, states like South Carolina get extra votes in the House of Representatives and the uh, Electoral College. The neutral proper baseline should have been zero. Um, you never get extra votes because you have of slaves. And anything other than zero is logically, structurally, analytically pro-slavery. That's my position. Um, I'm going to tell you Sean's in a minute and, and bring in Lincoln and other folks into, into the frame of analysis. You know, and in terms of, you know, what listener pushback that one might hear, you might say, well, um, this business about virtual representation, it's, it's very patronizing towards women that, that the, uh, the men are, are, are representing or virtually representing the interests of their wives and so forth. Um, and that's, that's a valid point, but um, certainly they are representing the interests of their wives in more so than they could be said to be representing the interests of their slaves. You know, they're actually working sure. against and, the and, interests of their slaves. And for exactly, example, they, against own, them. they might own property jointly with their, their wives and so forth so that, you know, if two people are involved here, then, you know, it's the, you know, it's necessary that they have a, have a vote, you know. Right. And, and, and minor children, you know, a five-year-old can't really vote. Um, uh, and, um, and let's also remember, just so we avoid anachronism, women at the founding were not themselves demanding the vote, asking for the vote. Abigail Adams wasn't in her famous letter to John Adams, nor was any other prominent woman at the time. Women didn't vote in any other um, uh, a democratic uh, regime uh, that had existed in world history in general. So not in ancient Athens, not in ancient Rome, not in Britain, not in Switzerland. Now, a few um, uh, non-married um, women were voting in New Jersey for a brief blip of time, um, uh, widows and, um, and single women, femsoul they're called. Um, but that quickly ended and it wasn't a very prominent thing. Um, but, um, but, but just again to repeat, three-fifths is rewarding a place like South Carolina for its participation in the international slave trade. And remember, the international slave trade can be eliminated in 1808 not a requirement, it's only permitted, but not slavery itself. Um, and by the way, every other um, uh, item um, uh, that's being imported 
um, other than slaves, could be eliminated immediately after the Constitution's ratification. So actually, the international slave trade was given a special 20-year immunity dispensation from possible um, uh, congressional uh, prohibition. So that's, again, a pro-slavery feature once you understand sort of the proper baseline. So the fact that um, um, uh, South Carolina and, and Georgia can feast on, on, on uh, uh, um, imported slaves for 20 years, whereas no, no one else wants to import anything else can um, demand that, that, that Congress step aside. So that's pro-slavery. Three-fifths is pro-slavery. Fugitive slave clauses are pro-slavery. Those are big structural pro-slavery features of the Constitution that, to repeat, are going to lead to pro-slavery presidents who put on pro-slavery um, who fill a bench with pro-slavery judges and justices who are going to come up with pro-slavery rulings like Dred Scott. That's you know, my neo-Garrisonian critique of the logic of the Constitution. Now, um, Sean pushes back. Um, most famously in a book that he wrote that um, uh, our readers, we'll put the Amazon link up on the uh, uh, website, No Property in Man. Slavery and anti-slavery at the nation's founding. And um, well, in, in certain respects, is channeling Lincoln, because Lincoln doesn't want to admit that the Constitution is pro-slavery. But Lincoln is making his sta statements as a politician, as an anti-slavery politician, and not as a pure historian. He, he in the end, creates an anti-slavery constitution. He makes it so, um, uh, but when he's saying, oh, the Constitution isn't really um, uh, pro-slavery, it's frankly some political spin. If I were in his shoes, you know, I might have done the same thing, but we need to understand he's doing this as a politician and not as a pure constitutional thinker. And Lincoln says, look, they were ashamed of slavery. They didn't use the word. And that's a big point for Sean. They didn't use the word slave. And that's true. I think many people were ashamed of slavery but that didn't stop them from adopting a pro-slavery constitution with a three-fifths clause. Um, and, and some of, uh, of, of uh, their shame may have merely been sort of a political tactics. Oh, let's not use the word because that's going to be a lightning rod, but we'll accomplish the same thing. We just won't use this word, um, uh, uh, slavery. So um, um, Sean is going to take, I'll say it one, uh, two, two ways and uh, um, on that. Um, in the, you let me, first, you let me write, uh, I'll let you write every, if you and I are collaborating on the Constitution, Andy, I'll let you write every word as long as you let me pick every number, because the numbers are going to be where the real power lies. Um, and three-fifths turns out to matter much more than the piety. It doesn't say slavery in so many words. Um, or if, if I'm, you know, if Sean's going to invoke Lincoln, I can too. Lincoln once said, if you call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? And the answer is four, because it doesn't matter what you call it. You know, a tail ain't a leg, okay? And whether you call it slavery or you don't call it slavery, it's still slavery, and you're rewarding it. Fair enough. By the way, on Lincoln, um, it's true that he, he does say this about the Constitution, but even he much prefers to talk about the Declaration of Independence in this, uh, than, than about the Constitution when it comes to issues of slavery and the Lincoln-Douglas debates and so forth. He keeps coming back to the Declaration, even in the Cooper Union speech and so forth. So it's a, that's much more of a theme for him than the Constitution. 
And unlike Wilentz, he also admits the Constitution in the Fugitive Slave Clause emphatically protects slavery as such. And he says, and I have to enforce that if I'm a constitutionalist. So Wilentz somehow kind of wants us to forget about the Fugitive Slave Clause and wish it away. And, and I think Lincoln, in a, a, the tradition of those who said, um, freedom is national and slavery is only local, not when it comes to the Fugitive Slave Clause today. Um, so... Um, uh, uh, and then, uh, uh, and, and, and Lincoln, I, th I think, is, is a more careful lawyer on that. Um, but um, uh, now let's talk about um, the related Wilentz idea about property in man. Wilentz says the Constitution repudiates the idea that there is, quote, property in man. It's a phrase he gets from the Princetonian James Madison at the Philadelphia Convention. And Wilentz is giving Madison way too much credit for being kind of anti-slavery. Madison really isn't um, as strongly anti-slavery. And he's focusing too much on this phrase, no property in man, as being some great victory that the anti-slavery forces achieve, that they don't admit in the Constitution expressly that there is such an idea as, quote, property in man, unquote. Uh, which takes me actually to the title uh, of Sean Wilentz's 2018 book, No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Um, and uh, um, I think that he tends to focus too much on um, this um, phrase about no property in man as, as the key, the essence of of what slavery, I guess, is, is property in man, and that's the problem, property in man. And I actually don't think that that's the real essence of slavery quite or doesn't capture everything. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, law and property law, um, uh, and then I'll walk through um, the book with our audience and, and identify some of the passages that I think uh, um, uh, or reflect of, 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 of Wilentz's analysis and um, that I think I, uh, where I have a, a different take. So, um, to me, what's slavery's essence? That it's um, involuntary and undeserved, it's cruel, it's racialized, it's birth-based, lifelong, intergenerational, uh, forever, basically. Um, it's caste-like, it's degrading, it's dehumanizing. Those are just some of the things that, that are the essence of, of slavery. Um, and now let's think about how they relate or don't to this idea of property in man. Um, so it's involuntary and undeserved. Um, that's not true of all property. A lot of property is um, voluntarily transferred. I receive this as a gift. I receive this as a bequest um, from someone who earned it. Um, they, let's imagine they, they invented something. They got a patent um, in the invention, and they then gifted it to me, or um, I in inherited it. So there's nothing in, in inherently um, in, in property itself that's involuntary or undeserved. Um, uh, uh, is property inherently cruel? Because slavery, American style slavery, was a, a vicious, a violent, cruel institution. I'm not sure that's true of all um, uh, property. Um, uh, sla American slavery, as we've talked about before, was highly racialized. That's again, not true of property as such. Um, 
a slavery, again, birth-based, lifelong, intergenerational, forever caste-like, not remotely true of, of property as such. And, and think about a property right that's just temporary, um, like a patent for or, or, or what have you. Um, um, uh, um, now, slavery, of course, is degrading and dehumanizing, and here's where I think Sean Williams would say, well, I wasn't attacking property, Akil. That's, you're, you're missing the point. It's property in man. You can't ever have a property right in a human being. And I say, well, actually, it's a little more complicated than that once you think about things. So um, in some kind of um, ordinary sense, oh, um, when you sign up to be an employee, your, your, your employer owns you from nine to five, uh, so to speak. Um, and um, and, uh, and the, that's not slavery, really, is it? Because it's, it's voluntary. Now, critics, actually, in the 19th century said, oh, yes, that is. That's wage slavery. But some of these people were actually Southerners, Southern slaveocrats, trying to attack you know, a capitalist system of free market system. Oh, that's wage slavery. But there seems to be a difference um, uh, between wage slavery, which is voluntary and, and involuntary servitude and, 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 and slavery. And, and uh, yeah, they actually um, would draw the, the, they actually would make the argument that wage slavery was worse than the, actual the slaverocrats slavery. did. Right. Because um, there's no, and, and, the, the master is providing for some of the, you know, the needs supposedly of the slave. I'm not saying that this is an accurate argument, exactly. but, but it's one that and they now, now, now you could say, well, actually, technically, wage slavery isn't property in man. The employer doesn't have a property interest in the employee. It's just a contract or something. The, technically, the employer doesn't even own the employee even for nine hours a day or something. Um, uh, okay. Um, is, um, but... In, in some pretty profound senses, let's, let's take something we talked about actually in our last episode, or maybe it was the episode before that, um, baseball. Um, owners, and we call them owners, you know, own teams, and they own the players in the team, and they can um, trade them. They can, as it were, buy and sell them to, to other teams. Um, uh, now, I don't think that's slavery, um, and it's not slavery in part because no one has to be a baseball player, and you sign up for the thing, and you can opt out of baseball altogether, um, but... Um, these are quasi-property rights in human beings that, that, that's called organized Major League Baseball or, or other forms of, of franchise sports, so to speak. So, again, I'm not sure that the essence of the thing is really captured by this metaphor of property in law because as a law-trained person, I, I think about property a little bit differently. Um, you say, but you can never have property in man, in humans. Well, I have property right in myself, that's self-ownership. And uh, Sean will say, well, of course, yeah, that's different. You can't ever own someone else, some other human being. And I would say, well, in baseball, it, ooh, it comes a little close. Um, but let's take other things. Let's take two people who agree to form a partnership. So in a partnership, I own half of what you are going to make going forward, and you own half of what I'm going to make going forward. In some sense, we each own half of, of the other, in, in certain sense, and it's a property-like right. It's property in man of a certain sort, in a, another human being. But it's nothing like slavery, because it's not involuntary and undeserved and cruel and racialized and birth-based and lifelong and intergenerational, forever, caste-like, degrading, dehumanizing. So again, much of the concept of property in man 
captures the, the essence of slavery or its evil. Um, in certain divorce situations, actually, um, uh, uh, one spouse is entitled to half of the revenue that the other um, may uh, 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 acquire for at least a certain uh, period, especially if, let's imagine, that the spouses um, were married when a certain professional degree was achieved, a doctor's, a medical degree or something like that, and and the non-medical spouse said, oh, I contributed to that medical degree by cooking and cleaning, and it's very gendered. I'm, I'm using a very gendered example because these are some of the actual cases in, let's say, the middle of the 20th century. Um, so he got his MD because I helped him get through medical school, so at least for several years after the dissolution of the marriage, half of the revenue should be mine. That's a property-like interest in his revenue stream, and I'm sure if you talk to some people who, are, who have been divorced, um, they'll say, oh yeah, my, my ex owns a, piece, oh, oh, owns a piece of me, and, and, and they're not, and that's not sort of utterly preposterous. Um, let's even talk about... Um, um, uh, for example, um, uh, embryos, they're human beings. Um, let's imagine a married couple and they uh, go through IVF and now there's some embryos and um, he passes away. And in his will, he provides that she will own those embryos because um, he wants them implanted and she wants them implanted. And, and, um, that's, and, and property has many different aspects, but one thing that it means is no one else owns those, a right to exclude. No one else can take that embryo and put it in um, their own body or destroy it for that matter. Um, and, and that was uh, created by them, um, uh, as it were, and... Um, uh, um, and it's maybe in a certain sense owned by her. Maybe we don't let her sell it to the highest bidder, um, uh, or maybe we, um, uh, but, but we do um, allow sometimes certain body uh, parts um, possibly to be um, sold. Um, some regimes allow the selling of human blood, which is not a man, but a part of a man, a part of a human. Um, um, some regimes might permit the selling of um, a gamete, a sperm, uh, or an egg. So hair, uh, you can sell your hair. I did not know that. Um, so um, yeah, wigs. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, I, people I should, donate. Yeah, it. I did know that. Yes, you can also yes. donate it to like breast cancer. You know, um, uh, uh, Vic, uh, my son, grew his hair out very long, and uh, several times got it. He grew out ten inches, and then got it shorn in a buzz cut. Um, and yes, he did give that. You're right to an organization called Locks of Love, mm -hmm. um, which made wigs for kids with cancer. And I was very proud of Vic when he was a uh, young uh, youngster for 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 doing that. Um, uh, so you're right. And there was okay. actually a, a, a protest movement to get you to cut your hair recently. Uh, yes, indeed. And you led it. And thank God for that. Because uh, um, we, we, we won't go there. Maybe we'll post a picture of me with my long hair in front of a, the Constitution Oak in, um, uh, in, down in Georgia. That, uh, yes. Andy, I think uh, I'll, I'll send you that so we can post that on the website. That it's, it's, <laughs> it's not one of my better looks. Okay. So, um, so again, um, I don't think the phrase property and man captures anything. So why is Sean Willens um, so captivated by this? Because Madison, the, his fellow Princetonian, is spinning when he says, well, you know, we, didn't, we, we kept out of the Constitution an express 
acknowledgement of the concept of property and man. And we kept out of the Constitution the word slave. And I'm thinking, well, bully for you. You kept out these words and these meaningless phrases, but you actually embedded the essence of the thing when you gave slave states extra clout in the all-important House of Representatives and the all-important Electoral College, thanks to the three-fifths clause. You embedded slavery when you were making northern states actually the involuntary slave catchers um, of the slave states. Um, and, and you gave slavery extra, be- uh, the slaveocracy, um, a 20-year free window, slave states to import as many people um, uh, in a fugitive slave trade in a horrid, a cruel um, barbarous uh, international, um, not fugitive, international slave trade, not, forget the word uh, fugitive. Um, they got a 20-year exemption from uh, congressional laws that um, allowed Congress to prohibit the um, importation of anything else except slaves immediately upon ratification. But, but the, the, the slave importing business got a 20-year exemption from that congressional regulatory power. These are massive um, and consequential pro-slavery elements of the U.S. Constitution, and they're going to lead to um, a regime that in the antebellum period is um, predictably pro-slavery. It's going to be Jackson's America, Andrew Jackson's America, and Andrew Jackson is a proud slaveholder, and antebellum America was actually getting worse on slavery rather than better in certain respects, and that's going to lead to a civil war, because there's a tension, because in the North, um, people are opposed to slavery, and and a lot of people who voted for the Constitution, they didn't understand how pro-slavery it would be. That's true. Um, um, So they didn't intentionally, many Northerners, create the system, but it was the system that was, in fact, created if you understand the the logic um, um, of the of the structure was created by the Constitution. So, talking about you know the the, the ways that the Constitution addresses slavery without so much saying it, there is a clause that that's uh, relevant to the slave trade, correct? And that the international uh, slave international trade. slave trade, yes, and. That clause cannot be amended in, during the period in which it ran, correct? It's, it's not only that they get a special 20-year exemption. That clause uniquely in the Constitution is said to be unamendable. So you couldn't change that three years out or five years um, into the, the, the operation of the new Constitution. You could change almost everything else, uh, but you can't change that. So that's yet another big pro-slavery accommodation in the Constitution. Right you are. And so, you know, you said that maybe people weren't aware that they were enshrining slavery, you know, to the degree that they were. But this kind of calls attention to itself, doesn't it? The fact that it can't be amended and Um, kind of stands out. In Walensa's defense, I think lots of Northerners, first of all, don't anticipate the cotton gin and don't anticipate how slavery will actually metastasize. Um, um, they see slavery fading away in their neighborhoods, and they extrapolate wrongly from that. They see 1808 as if it says we will get rid of the international slave trade in 1808 rather than we can. Um, They uh, wrongly equate international slave trade with slavery itself. So thinking, oh, well, in 1808, 
slavery will be eliminated. No, only the international slave trade can be eliminated, but there's still going to be slavery in states and maybe slavery in the West and maybe slavery in the national territory and there's still the Fugitive Slave Clause and, and all sorts of um, um, elements of slavery, maybe the interstate slave trade. So I think they wrongly extrapolate. Put more generally, they are anti-slavery, many of them in the North, and they assume everyone is. Um, and the Virginians are slaveholders who don't like slavery. Uh, Washington, Madison, Jefferson, uh, George Witt, um, others. But the South Carolinians are proud slaveholders. Um, and um, uh, th they um, uh, prevail largely because they're very emphatic about this. This is very important to them. And um, they, because they care more about it, um, are uh, uh, exercise disproportionate weight um, in the deliberations. Who today understands um, uh, um, prescription drug prices um, and patent rules for, for, for various new drugs better than anyone else? Well, it would be Big Pharma, because that's what they make their money off of. Who understands um, uh, uh, oil depletion allowances and uh, issues about... Um, uh, an oil and gas development better than anyone else. Well, it would be um, a big carbon. It would be uh, Exxon Mobil and 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 other companies um, like that. So, so who understands slavery best of all? The slave industry, the slaveocrats, um, and and they cut a particularly good deal. And the Northerners um, have a, an opposition to slavery, many of them, but it's a sort of diffuse opposition. Um, um, it's, uh, and they are less um, attentive to um, some of the ins and outs of slavery. So, so I'm not saying that everyone up and down the continent intentionally created a constitution that was emphatically pro-slavery. I'm saying they, that though the structure of the constitution did create a, a pro-slavery system, predictably so, this wasn't like some asteroid hitting the earth that no one could have, uh, have foreseen and wiping out the dinosaurs or something like that. It was foreseeable, even if not uh, this pro-slavery uh, tilt, even if not completely foreseen by all Northerners. So um, there's a, an argument that, uh, that occurs to me uh, that someone might make, which is, well, uh, you're saying that there's an electoral advantage to the South from the Electoral College and as evidence of that, you point out the presidents that are elected before the Civil War. Okay, fair enough. Um, but that same electoral advantage would there would pertain to the question of abolishing the international slave trade. So why is it then that in 1808 they are able to abolish the international slave trade? And what I would say to that, to answer my own question in part, is that when you do that, what you're doing is you're establishing or entrenching the domestic slave trade. By then, yes. lots of slaves have been bred. There are a lot more slaves than there were before. And who are the leaders in the domestic slave trade? Virginia. Yes. So a state which, a which otherwise might not have as much of a stake in slavery as, say, South Carolina because of the nature of the land and so forth, actually winds up with this stake in slavery, but not in the, but not in the international slave trade. So it's in their interests to, uh, to do that as well. Cool. Correct. They, they um, are protectionists, as it were. Um, they don't want to compete with foreign imports, so they, uh, the Virginians ally 
with folks to the north to prohibit the international slave trade. So no more slaves imported from Africa or the Caribbean. But that means since Virginia is producing way more slaves than it can use because um, uh, tobacco was not slave intensive, tobacco cultivation to the same extent that um, uh, rice and indigo and later cotton will be slave intensive. And um, uh, um, tobacco um, is depleting the soils. And so, so you're producing all these slaves that you can't really use in Virginia but you want to sell them, and you sell them into the West, you sell them down South. Um, you're, you become basically a breeder of slaves, Virginia does, the way um, Virginia and Kentucky might be breeders of horses, um, for example, to, to um, use um, uh, uh, an, uh, uh, an analogy or metaphor that is deeply unpleasant in a way, but maybe also deeply revealing, because that's actually... Um, what was going on. And Sean's saying, ah, Akil, you get it. That's property in man. They're treating human beings like cattle. I say, yes, I agree that it's dehumanizing, but the property concept doesn't fully capture all the ways in which it's dehumanizing. Um, now, um, um, let me um, walk the reader, uh, at least our audience, through just several of the passages in uh, Wilentz's preface and introduction, just to give you a sense of what he says and what I would, um, um, ha- the th- things that I would say somewhat differently. But let me begin um, with one thing that he does say at the very end of his preface, um, which is common ground between Sean Wilentz and yours truly. He says at page XV of the preface, um, uh, 15, more than 40 years ago, David Bryan Davis agreed to direct my dissertation at Yale and proceed to give my stumbling early efforts exacting and sympathetic readings beyond anything I could have hoped for. Already an intellectual hero, he became a mentor, an unfailing friend, and an exemplar of humane imagination and scholarly fortitude. This book, in every way, is dedicated to him. Um, and that's very moving to me. Uh, David B. Davis was my teacher as well, undergrad, and for Sean, it was in grad school at Yale. We, Sean and I are products of the same Yale history department. Again, um, Sean is a graduate student, um, me as an undergrad. David B. Davis um, was my friend and mentor. Um, he, too, was a Sterling professor um, at Yale. And in fact, Sean and I stood next to each other, um, and I think held each other's hand um, at the um, um, memorial service, uh, the uh, the, uh, funeral service for um, David B. Davis a couple of years ago um, at uh, Davis's um, uh, uh, synagogue. Um, And so even though I'm disagreeing with my friend Sean on certain things, we have a lot in common and, and in a deep way. And maybe, you know, not incidentally, um, what we have in common is an Ivy League story of a certain sort. And uh, perhaps not coincidentally, uh, the person whom Sean and I most have in common, David B. Davis, our mutual mentor, is, was, I should say, uh, himself an embodiment of uh, this Ivy League story that you and I, Andy, have been exploring in this series of podcast, David B. Davis, the late, great David B. Davis, who passed away a, a couple of years ago, was the preeminent scholar of American slavery and indeed of, of world slavery um, uh, uh, of his era, the, the, the post uh, 
World War II era. And he himself uh, went to Dartmouth undergrad and then uh, graduate school at Harvard. He taught for many years in the Cornell History Department and then eventually came to the Yale History Department uh, at which uh, he taught uh, uh, Sean and then later yours truly. But those are four of the eight Ivy League schools right there, Dartmouth, Harvard, Cornell, Yale, embodied uh, in uh, David B. David, um, my mentor, one of my many mentors, and, and, and uh, Sean's perhaps most significant mentor. In 2014, Professor Davis received the uh, National Humanities Medal from Barack Obama. Um, and I think uh, at least one Pulitzer Prize, at least one Bancroft Prize, just an, a very a record of, of accomplishment. Um, and Willems himself is a Bancroft Prize-winning historian, Pulitzer Prize-winning finalist, um, um, very eminent person, um, um, with whom I'm disagreeing with, with some trepidation, but um, <laughs> I'm fearless or uh, uh, stupid, depending on uh, how you look at it. So I'm actually now going to uh, uh, share with our audience some of the sentences from Sean's book, Where I Disagree. Really on the second page of his preface, um, uh, Roman X, Roman 10, of the book, Sean says, um, the Civil War came only because of undaunted anti-slavery political activities, the most effective of them claiming the authority of the Constitution. And I would say, well, the war came off you know, not only because of the undaunted anti-slavery political activities of various forces, but also because of a politically powerful uh, pro-slavery uh, set of forces, the slaveocracy, um, that was powerful um, um, and batshit crazy, in my view, precisely because of things like the Three-Fifths Clause that gave them extra clout in the system. Um, yeah, that statement uh, is reminiscent of... Uh of Lincoln's statement when he meets with the black leaders um, before he, before the uh, issues the Emancipation Proclamation, he says to them that that uh, they are somehow the cause of the war. Um, so, um, well, Lentz goes on to talk about the Republicans' Democratic triumph in 1860. Of course, they didn't have a con even a congressional majority um, in 1861, thanks in part to the, the Three-Fifths Clause. Um, he talks about um, how um, the war, uh, I'm sorry, how this election sparked the events that led to slavery's downfall, but the events that led to slavery's downfall were, were battlefield events to a very great extent. It wasn't as if the Constitution, um, through its own gradual peaceful processes, mere statutes and constitutional amendments, um, basically phased slavery out. That would be a lovely story, if true. Oh, the Constitution didn't immediately get rid of slavery, but it set in motion a set of events that would ineluctably lead to slavery's demise, but it didn't happen that way. In fact, slavery got worse and worse and worse until it almost destroyed the patient, and then we had a war, and Lincoln luckily won the war because Meade fortified the center at Gettysburg on the third day, but that's not quite fully thanks to the Constitution. Um, uh, related to, 
related to that, um, um, on the same page, uh, well then says, um, the Constitution, um, in effect, provided the means to hasten slavery's demise. And I say, only contingently so. Um, there was no guarantee of that um, at all. Next page of Sean's preface says, um, um, most important, most important, the Philadelphia Convention took care to ensure that while the Constitution would accept slavery where it already existed, it would not validate slavery in national law. That is, the Constitution would tolerate slavery without authorizing it. And I say, it did validate slavery in national law. The Constitution itself is national law, and it's validating slavery in the Fugitive Slave Clause, and it's validating slavery in the th and, and calling for other federal laws, uh, statutes, to enforce uh, the Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution itself, which is to repeat itself national law, the supreme law of the land. The Three-Fifths Clause is part of that national law, that supreme law of the land, and it is validating slavery. It's empowering slavery. He then goes on to say, no mere technicality. The framers' exclusion of property and man was important enough to in 1787 for delegates to insist upon it. In coming years, it proved enormously consequential. And I would say, yes, mere technicality. You don't have to say something to do it, and it didn't say slavery. It did slavery in profound ways. Lots of the things in the Constitution are um, implicit and um, incorporated by reference. Um, the Constitution, for example, doesn't define Forget slavery, um, property in general. It says if your real property is taken away without just compensation, the federal government will have to pay for it in the Fifth Amendment. But it doesn't define what, um, who has a, a property right to what. State law defines things, and the federal constitution protects those state law structures. Constitution doesn't say who's going to vote, um, doesn't specify quite who's going to vote for congressional elections. It says whatever state law provides for election for um, state assembly, those are going to be the rules for voting for um, uh, members of the House of Representatives. Over and over again, it, the Constitution actually just builds on state law definitions, state law building blocks. That's Con Law 101. That's the basis of my first article, my tenure article, which is actually called Of Sovereignty and Federalism, one of the 100 most cited articles of all time um, in um, American legal scholarship. So, so Sean is grasping at straws when he says, well, the Constitution itself doesn't say so. It doesn't need to. It's protecting state law concepts and allowing state laws, to, states to have slavery. Now, he says now, two things, though, in that statement. He says that it doesn't authorize it, but he also says that the certain delegates advocated for that position, that they not authorize it, so that it was important to them. So um, how do you address that? That's not quite addressed by your, your fact. You, you could say, well, they were advocating for something that didn't matter. You know, That's exactly what I do say. And in fact, in the, my um, uh, marginal notes, I said unnecessary. It could always be worse. But the question is, is it pro-slavery, anti-slavery, or neutral? 
I'm saying it's pro-slavery. It could have been even more pro-slavery. It could have been more egregiously and emphatically pro-slavery. But the fact that it wasn't egregiously and emphatically and explicitly pro-slavery doesn't mean somehow that it was neutral or anti-slavery. It just means it, it, it could have been even worse. So um, your, your answer to him then is that, yes, they advocated for it not being worse than it was. And, 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 and the debate about whether you say so in words is, is actually not particularly important. It's just um, um, uh, laws about substance and not... It's about symbols, too. But, but um, uh, I'll let you have certain symbols if you let me have all the substance. Um, that was my uh, 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 first point. And my second one was, um, it, even though it didn't use certain words, um, they were... Um, it uh, didn't say slavery... It did slavery by building on, by incorporating by reference state slavery institutions um, into the federal constitutional system. And I'm, um, I'm trying to be he, fair to his argument, though, and and he is saying that it w that it's relevant that people advocated for the absence of uh, an assertion for property and man or whatever you want to call it. So if, do, first of all, is he right that people advocated for that? And number well, one, and number two, you know, why did they do so if in fact it does, didn't mean much? Well, that takes us, segues into something else. He pays way too much attention to what's said secretly behind closed doors at Philadelphia. And, and the secrecy lapsed at the end of the Philadelphia Convention, but the, the verbatim transcripts of these things, you know, aren't uh, available until um, uh, 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 excuse me, decades later. The way to interpret the Constitution is actually to look at what it actually says. Uh, and, and all this stuff that he's relying on is, you know, just little, little um, debates here and there at Philadelphia that no one paid any attention to in the ratification period. So it says three-fifths. That's a big deal. Um, so what if it says slavery or not slavery? And, and some people, you know, he says, ah, they didn't acknowledge, they, they took out a word that, um, that people, um, uh, that, that uh, in the Philadelphia Convention, the first draft talked about um, um, people bound um, uh, by law um, to serve. Let's get rid of that because slavery isn't Who? No one at the ratification period knows that they took out those two words and he said, well, they, they denied that slavery was legitimate. And, and I said, no, they didn't. You know, they, 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 they didn't maybe say the words by law, but that means nothing at all. Um, and, and the way you do constitutional law Sean, is not by reading little tiny tea leaves at Philadelphia. It's looking at the structure of the system of power that's actually created. That's actually, um, so you're, um, and, 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 and you're just buying Madison's spin in his um, uh, note published many years later. Oh, we achieved this great victory. We pulled out this word or something. That, you're, you're buying into it, and he's just spinning because he knows that this is, you know, that this is shameful, and he's just trying. Um, so, so and of course, Madison um, does that um, in other ways, right? He defends Jefferson. He tries to say that Jefferson is, is spinning this and that didn't really mean the board. it. You know, across so. the board. Now, Willens at page um, uh, XII twelve of the preface says the framers left room for political efforts aimed at slavery's restriction and eventually its destruction, um, even under a constitution that safeguarded slavery. And I think that's right. They did leave room, but there was no guarantee that, they were, that their slavery was going to be abolished. And if, for example, um, you know, they didn't anticipate the cotton, bin, uh, cotton gin, but suppose actually there had been another, but they knew that 
technology is changing all the time. There are all sorts of innovations. And cotton gin makes slavery much more profitable. Um, they're lucky that there was some, wasn't some other invention, the cotton fin or the cotton bin, or you know, um, uh, that made slavery e um, even more economically viable, let's say, in, in the North. They just rolled the dice, um, and they got lucky that at the end of the day, um, uh, uh, the North, the anti-slavery North is going to have more industrial might and, and, uh, 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 and, and it's going to be able to prevail. Um, uh, but, but that was not because they put slavery on a path of extinction, gradual extinction, which they could have, um, and which um, various other states had already done. They could have said, in 1808, not the international slave trade might end, can end. In 1808, the international slave trade must end. And the interstate slave trade must end. Uh, and slavery in the West must end. And the Fugitive Slave Clause must end. And slavery in existing states must end. And if 1808 won't do it for you, 1828, 1848, they could have done this. Other states were, states were already doing this. Pennsylvania, Connecticut, um, Rhode Island, and elsewhere. Um, and they didn't do that. That's the relevant baseline. Did they put slavery on a path of gradual uh, abolition, gradual extinction? Then it would be an anti-slavery constitution, an abolitionist constitution, and it wasn't. And, and here's one place where I do agree with Sean. He says early on um, in a note about terminology that um, a wide variety of anti-slavery advocates call themselves abolitionists so long as they aspire to commence slavery's eventual eradication. So I agree with him. He says on the next page, whether or not people subscribe to an immediate, immediatist view of how slavery, um, um, the ab abolition ought to be achieved, you're an abolitionist if you're calling for it the abolition of slavery, whether it's now or on some sort of um, sliding scale timetable. Um, but that's precisely what they didn't do. They left the door open for that, but they also left the door open for slavery forever. That would be just neutral, maybe. But I'm saying, oh, it's worse than neutral because they're giving slave states extra clout in the all-important House of Representatives and the all-important Electoral College. Okay. I'm not sure that there's, that there's that much uh, distance between the two of you on that point. Uh, I mean, I know you said you agree on the definition, but I wonder if he were here, if we asked him, um, did the Northerners believe that slavery, that the Constitution that they uh, participated in the authoring of would, would certainly have resulted in the, in the eventual, eventual uh, disintegration of slavery? Um, and I... I find it hard to believe that they that they were sure that it was determined that that would happen. Um, yeah, I point. think he I think he might agree, but then he's conceded the point. You see, the point isn't also just what's in people's heads; it's what actually is the structure of the system um, uh, that they create. Because I'm a political scientist, um, and I'm not just looking um, into this person's intent or that person's intent. I'm seeing, as a law trained person, as a political scientist, what's the system going to do, and the system is predictably going to give you someone like Andrew Jackson. And it does, you see. Um, so um, uh, here's the, his uh, first sentence, page one. 
uh, once we get out of the, 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 now we're into Arabic numerals in his book. Introduction, first sentence. Did the Constitution of the United States enshrine racial slavery? He says no. That's his way of teeing up the question. I say, yes, it incorporates state law of slavery via the three-fifths clause, and it it gives um, slavery a bonus. Yes, it incorporates state law of slavery in the fugitive slave clause, and it gives it a bonus because northern states now have to cooperate, and they didn't before the Constitution, under international law rules of comedy um, and um, a, a case called Somerset's case. Without the Constitution... Free states wouldn't have to actually send fugitive slaves back any more than Canada does or England does. Okay. He then, the next paragraph begins. Descriptions of the Constitution as pro-slavery have misconstrued critical debates inside the convention. And I say, I don't care in the end that much about crucial debates inside the convention, all of which are secret. And Madison is spinning in his um, notes. I care about the, the, the logic of the system that's created. Three-fifths is three-fifths, and it's pro-slavery, because analytically, anything other than zero-fifths is pro-slavery. Um, and that's where you have to debate me, on that high conceptual logical ground, and you don't, Sean. Um, so... Um, He says on the next page, the framers deliberately excluded any validation of property in man. That's, in my view, silly. It's just wrong. They they may not have explicitly used the phrase property in man, but they did uh, validate property in man by saying slave um, slavery is lawful in the South. When people flee the South to go up to the North, they have to be sent back. That is a validation of slavery in every way, shape, and form. It's therefore a validation of property of man, and it's in the Constitution itself, the Fugitive Slave Clause. Um, so, but earlier um, you were pointing out how slavery is different from property in man. Well, I'm using just his own phrasing here. That's the, I'm picking. It's it's yes, it's so much more than that, but it it encompasses that. I'm just saying it's that's not the only thing that it is, but it's one thing that it is, um, and. And, and they are then validating not merely property in man, but to use my formulation. So I know you're trying to be fair to Sean and hold my feet to the fire, but on this one, they're not, they are validating property in man in the Fugitive Slave Clause and also involuntary, undeserved, cruel, racialized, birth-based, lifelong, intergenerational, caste-like, degrading, dehumanizing um, legal regimes. Uh, he admits at page three, the slaveholders' power in national politics, enlarged by the notorious three-fifths clause, seemed at the time almost certain to grow over the coming decades. So I say that's, you know, um, a key concession, yes. Um, But then he says, but the compromise did not secure to the slaveholding states anything close to impregnable control over slavery. Well, maybe not, but why is that the test? You know, if the test is, well, it didn't impregnably, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, entrench slavery. Yes, there was the possibility of getting rid of it, but that doesn't make it anti-slavery. Um, that just makes it less pro-slavery than, than some alternative imaginable universe. Above all, he says, the convention drew a line against acknowledging slavery's legitimacy outside state law and took pains to have the Constitution make that line perfectly clear. 
the three-fifths clause itself is not state law. It's national law in the Constitution itself. The Fugitive Slave Clause itself in the Constitution is not state law. It's national law and pro-slavery. Um, then he says, um, if you think, for example, that slaveholders obtained human property lawfully, that the rights to property would therefore be inviolable. No one thinks that property rights are always inviolable in every way. So you have a property right to a boa constrictor in one state, but, oh, if you take that into Florida Everglades, you're in trouble. You have a property right to marijuana in one state, but you can't take it into other states. We restrict property in all sorts of ways all the time. The idea that to call something property is to mean that it's in, inviolable is not... Um, it was also um, eminent domain. Right. In, is, is yeah, it? of course. Yeah, we take property, uh, all sorts of restrictions on property. Okay. At page four, he says, in a, in a really interesting formulation, at first glance, this distinction, that is Walensis' distinction, may seem strange and even bogus. Wasn't allowing slavery to continue where it existed the same thing as giving sanction to it? And I would say... Um, yes, Sean, I agree with you that at first glance your distinction seems strange and even bogus because it is strange and even bogus and not just at first glance. And it's not merely allowing slavery to continue where it existed. That would just be, be, be neutral. It's empowering slavery by giving it extra credit both in apportionment and in conflicts of law. Um, in the House of Representatives and Electoral College and apportionment and conflicts of law, siding with slave states over free states in cases involving fugitive slaves. So just for our audience, so for, by conflict of law, you mean that if you have a, 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 a slave from a particular state escapes to another state where, let's say, like Vermont, let's say where Correct. slavery was illegal um, in, in, in the Vermont Constitution. Right, so um, which law prevails? The Vermont law, which is free soil law, or the, the law of the, the, the home state of the fugitive slave, which is slave law? That's a conflict. Which law are you going to enforce? The law of the, um, the original jurisdiction from which the slave escaped, the slave jurisdiction, or the law of the free jurisdiction into which the slave has escaped in, in your hypothetical Vermont? It's a conflict between, let's say, Vermont law and Alabama law. Um, and the Fugitive Slave Clause, and ordinarily, with, unless the Constitution specifies otherwise, state would be allowed to apply its own law. Vermont would be allowed to apply its own law. When in Rome, do as the Romans. You know, you can drive um, uh, as fast as you like, and you're a fast driver, Andy, I've been in the car with you, on the Autobahn, but you, and, and almost as fast as you like in Wyoming, and you can't do that, you know, on the D.C. streets, even though, uh, you know, I've, I've been with you, and you, you've been tempted to, to go a little fast on the D.C. streets. Oh, many, uh, uh, just saying. But when in Rome, cameras. you do as the Roman. You, you, ordinarily, it's local law, but the Constitution says Vermont can't apply its own local law. It actually has to apply Alabama law. That's what I meant by conflict of laws. Mm -hmm. So yes, in these two um, domains, um, um, slavery is being not merely continued, but um, privileged in uh, apportionment, house and electoral college, and um, in uh, what I call conflicts of law. Okay, um, I could um, go on, but I think I've given you uh, enough of a flavor of um, Lentz on my first topic, which is just, is the Constitution generally pro-slavery? 
And I've even begun to tell you on uh, uh, my second topic, which is a subset of this, slavery and the Electoral College, why I think actually the Electoral College in particular is pro-slavery. I'm going to say a little more on that. Um, and then we'll talk finally about um, uh, Andrew Jackson's veto message, which is one-third area, uh, one, uh, which is a third area where I respectfully disagree with Sean. So, um, you know, one of the questions that we asked when we talked about the 1619 Project, and I think which we answered uh, persuasively, is what, why does it matter? Um, and, you know, one might ask this again. Slavery's gone. You know, uh, Three-Fifths Clause is gone. Fugitive Slave Clause is gone. Why, why does it matter now to us, or, you know, this question of was the Constitution pro-slavery or not? Well, if you're an historian, the truth always matters just for its own sake. It's it's um, the essence of 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 um, the discipline of 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 history. But I think because our Constitution, we still have the Constitution. It has such um, uh, moral authority. Um, it has legal authority, but it also has moral authority for so many people. It it matters um, whether it deserves that moral authority or not. And um, I would say um, that the fact that it was pro-slavery, look, I, I really am very um, much a believer in the Constitution, so I'm conceding, though, that they were, uh, the original Constitution was pro-slavery, so here's why it might matter then. On my view, um, which was Thurgood Marshall's view, the Constitution only really deserves our allegiance today um, after and because of the Civil War amendments that try to eradicate those pro-slavery elements to the original Constitution. Um, and indeed, um, Sean's book begins, his preface, um, with um, Thurgood Marshall. He says, this is his first sentence. In 1987, Supreme Court Associate Justice Thurgood Marshall, in a widely publicized speech, disavowed the official celebrations marking the bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution. Um, and of course, our audience knows that Thurgood Marshall was African-American, um, the lawyer who won Brown versus Board of Education, first black on the U.S. Supreme Court. The flag-waving festivities and gauzy invocations of the framers, he protested, ignored the original Constitution's protection of racial slavery. Okay. Um, uh, um, um, According to Marshall, the bicentennial should instead commemorate the succeeding generations of Americans who rewrote the Constitution by destroying slavery and fighting for racial justice. Those, he remarked, who refused to acquiesce in outdated notions of liberty, justice, and equality, and who strived to better them. Now, why might that matter if he's saying we really need to pay attention to Lincoln's generation and the amendments um, because the original Constitution was, was deeply flawed at the outset, well, it might matter if you believe that, then you're going to uh, be especially open to reading the Reconstruction Amendments broadly and generatively, and that may make a difference when it comes to, for example, your views on congressional power to enforce civil rights and voting rights. Um, and you know, we've talked about in previous sessions how I believe that the single worst case of the last 15 years was the Shelby County decision, which gutted important 
provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is enforcing this Reconstruction vision, which is eradicating um, uh, the pro-slavery elements of the original Constitution, which is making amends, as amendments can sometimes do, for the earlier um, uh, uh, sins of the fathers. Um, let me um, read you the passage from Ruth Bader Ginsburg's epic dissent in that case that I found m most compelling, um, uh, and it connects to your question of why it might matter today. Because Shelby County matters today, and Shelby County is one of the things that's making it difficult for Joe Biden uh, and the Democrats to pass a new Voting Rights Act. Here's Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dissent. I think it's one of her three best opinions uh, uh, in a glorious career on the court, along with her majority opinion in the VMI case and um, another case that I, I won't mention. Actually, there might be two others that I, I, I could mention. So one of her four most epic dis uh, opinions, this one in dissent. Uh, the VMI case was in the majority where she invalidated um, uh, unfair, unequal treatment of women at the Virginia Military Institute. She says, nowhere in today's majority opinion is there a clear recognition of the transformative effect the 15th Amendment aimed to achieve. Notably, quote, the founders' first successful amendment told Congress it could make no law over a certain domain, unquote. In contrast, the Civil War amendments used, quote, language that authorized transformative new statutes to uproot all vestiges of unfreedom and inequality and provided sweeping enforcement powers to enact appropriate legislation targeting state abuses, unquote. What's she quoting from? Akhil Amar, America's Constitution, a biography from 2005. If you believe, as I do, that the founding was deeply flawed, then we needed a reconstruction to give us a second founding and the Reconstruction Amendments take on special significance uh, if we admit, as I want us to admit, that the original Constitution was not just neutral on slavery, but pro-slavery, alas, in, in certain ways. And does it matter that the South seceded because of slavery? Yes, it does matter, and they did, and people don't want to admit that. Does it matter that the Americans did not revolt in 1776, primarily because of slavery. Yes, it does. And on that one, you see, I'm with Sean Wilentz. So let's just take these three issues, because slavery is so important in America. And getting it right, getting the actual story right is going to be really important, because we can't cohere around a lie. We can only cohere around the truth. And this is our national narrative. So, um, so question one, was the American Revolution primarily about slavery? No, it wasn't about protecting slavery, and the Brits weren't going to be getting rid of it. That, that wasn't uh, um, what was about to happen. And on that, Sean Willens is right, Gordon Wood is right, and Nicole Hannah-Jones is incorrect in my view. On 1788, was the Constitution pro-slavery? Alas, it was. Um, I you know, wish it were otherwise. Um, and 
I'm not with Sean Wilentz on that. Um, and I know Lincoln kind of said some, uh, some things contrary to that at times, and so did Frederick Douglass, but they weren't doing so as historians. They were doing so as political actors. Um, now, did um, uh, uh, the, the South revolt in 1861, primarily to protect slavery. Yes, it did. Um, and the, the right-wing crazies are, are wrong when they, they deny that. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones is, in effect, reading 1861 back into 1776. Um, yes, the rebels in 1861 were trying to protect slavery, fundamentally and primarily. No, the rebels in 1776 that's not what they were about. The rebellion basically began in Boston, which, you know, uh, uh, is anti-slavery, uh, has slavery, but gets rid of it uh, very soon after the, um, the, the, the revolution. And, and, and uh, P- Pennsylvania, is, uh, Philadelphia is a really important part of the American Revolution, and that's where the, the, the world's first abolition society is born, and they get rid of slavery with a statute, albeit gradually, but they are abolitionists by Sean's definition and mine, and they passed the 1780 statute abolishing slavery, albeit gradually. So, no, the American Revolution wasn't about protecting slavery. Um, uh, yes, the Constitution was pro-slavery, and it matters. Um, uh, yes, the Southern rebels did revolt, um, basically, um, and primarily for slavery-related reasons. And therefore, the Reconstruction Amendments are really, really important today as um, uh, the, uh, the basis for pulling us all together into a document that we all can genuinely admire and should. Um, and, 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 and that's um, the, a phrase that I borrowed from you in the um, uh, postscript of... Uh, my new book, um, where I talk about a, a national narrative. Um, uh, and I want, to st- I want to get the, the story straight, because the national narrative around the Constitution really does matter. And of course, that's one of the reasons that our Ever Scholar course that's coming up is named the first American founding. This notion that there's more than one founding elevates the importance of the Reconstruction Amendments and has implications, as you say, for jurisprudence now. Very important. Okay, I'm going to move much more quickly to this sub-issue about uh, electoral college and slavery. I've already sh- you know, told you three-fifths is a pro-slavery um, uh, provision, and it matters because, as you've already begun to tell the audience, in the 1800-1801 election between Jefferson and, and Adams, which we've talked about in previous episodes, Jefferson does win in the electoral college, but he wins thanks to the three-fifths clause. You take away, because he wins mainly the southern states, and Adams wins mainly the northern states, and you take away um, the extra electoral votes that Thomas Jefferson is getting because of slavery, and he loses that election. Um, uh, uh, um, So so, so the electoral college three-fifths bonus is really the margin of victory in that that election. So here's how I put the point in um, the most recent book, The Words That Made Us. Without the added electoral votes created by the existence of Southern slaves, John Adams would have won the election of 1800 as everyone at the time plainly understood. Had the electoral college been apportioned on the basis of free population with no three-fifths bonus, Jefferson would have finished with about four electoral votes less than Adams rather than eight votes more. 
in the sharp words of several northern newspapers, Jefferson was riding, quote, into the temple of liberty upon the shoulders of slaves, unquote. As at least a dozen northern publications put the point, quote, John Adams has been re-elected president of the United States by a majority of all the free people thereof. Now, Sean has some screwy um, way of calculating that somehow ignores these basic facts. And, um, but, this, but his way of calculating, well, there were other things that were going on. Yes, there are always other things that are going on in every election, but here's how you do it, simple-mindedly. You run the election with, uh, uh, you imagine that the three-fifths clause didn't exist, you do the math, and then you see if, if that actually is greater than the margin of victory. Of course, Sean is right. If the rules had been different, people would have played the game differently. Maybe Jefferson would have done X rather than Y, and Madison would have done A rather than B. But that's not how you, you ever run the counterfactual. Um, and, and even if, um, in any election law case, um, but even if that's not the right way to do it, you know, to run the counterfactual, Sean, that's how everyone at the time did run the counterfactual. I've got all these northern newspapers saying just that. I'm not making it up. Gary Wills is not making that up in his book, Negro President, when he emphasizes all that. So that's the 12th Amendment. Uh, I'm assuming that's the election of, of, of 1800, 1801, which results in a 12th Amendment that changes the rules about electing presidents versus vice presidents, the Adams, excuse me, the, the Jefferson Burr tie, but doesn't. So it fixes that so we can vote separately for president and vice president, but doesn't fix this bias to slave states. And, Sean, here's the point. Northern rep uh, Congress people and senators again and again and again say, if we're going to change um, the Constitution and amend the Constitution to fix one electoral college glitz, let's fix this other one too. And they don't. So I'm going to read you what some of those passages are, because I'm not making this up, Sean. This is actually what Northerners do say. So the tw even if in 1788, not everyone understood in the ratification process that three-fifths was going to be a big, big bonus, by 1800, everyone is seeing that. Everyone with eyeballs is seeing that this is the margin of victory. Most of the South vote for Jefferson. He's a Southerner. Most of the North vote for Adams. He's a Northerner. Um, it's decided basically where North meets South, which today might be o o Ohio or North Carolina or Virginia or something. Back then, it was called New York, which was a slave state. Still, it was in the process of getting rid of slavery, but it still had a lot of slaves. And New York votes for Adams in 1796, joining with the North, and votes uh, for Jefferson in um, uh, 1800, uh, joining the South. And, and Burr is important in all of that. He's helping to swing New York into... Um, the Jefferson column. Uh, and so everyone with eyeballs is seeing that three-fifths is huge, a margin of victory, because the nation's dividing, not big state versus small state, but north against south. Um, here's a passage from the book. Congressional critics of Jefferson and the amendment that his political party began pushing after his election repeatedly highlighted that his supposed popular revolution had slaveocratic roots. In 1802, Connecticut Congressman Samuel Dana declared that any sensible amendment aiming to remedy the systemic flaws exposed by the 1800-1801 crisis should consider whether the allotment of representatives 
and thus presidential electors, quote, should be in proportion to the whites or in proportion to whites compounded with slaves, unquote. And he's arguing for zero-fifths. In 1803, Representative Seth Hastings of Massachusetts argued that a proper 12th Amendment should provide, quote, for an equal representation of free citizens and free citizens only, uh, uh, unquote, thereby repairing the 1787, this is also a quote, compromise by which one part of the union has obtained a great and, in my opinion, unjust advantage over the other parts of the union. A compromise, sir, by which the southern states have gained a very considerable increase of representatives and electors, founded solely upon their numerous black population, unquote, by which he means slaves, of course. Massachusetts Representative Samuel Thatcher likewise blasted the peculiar inequality, pun intended, between regions, he's punning on the peculiar institution, he blasted the peculiar inequality between regions created by the representation of slaves who would add, quote, 18 electors of president and vice president at the next election, unquote. In the same spirit, New Hampshire Senator William Plumer lamented the, quote, 18 additional electors and representatives created by shadow slavery. Will you, by this amendment, lessen the weight and influence of the eastern states, meaning the northern states, in the elections of your first officers, and still retain the, this unequal article in your constitution? Shall property in one part of the union, that is slavery, um, give an increase of, lecture, uh, of electors and be wholly excluded in other states, that, let's say like northern real estate or, or um, uh, um, uh, uh, liquid wealth? Um, bank uh, shares and the like. Can this be right? So again and again and again, people at the time say, three-fifths is the margin of victory, we should get rid of this in the 12th Amendment, and they don't. But, um, and that's when everyone sees that it's all about, um, that three-fifths has been a huge advantage. Now, my disagreement with Sean goes back even earlier and deeper because I say at the Philadelphia Convention which is secret um, uh, at the time, so not everyone is, is seeing it on C-SPAN. Um, James Madison actually talks about um, presidential election because another um, uh, delegate, the great James Wilson from Pennsylvania says, we should just elect the president directly. That's how the best states pick their governors, just direct election. And... Um, Madison and Wilson often see eye to eye. And Madison says, like, in principle, you're right. But here's the problem. The South will lose every... I've just done the math. The South will lose every time, if that's so, because we can't count our slaves and a huge population of our slaves, uh, a, a huge p percentage of our population are slaves. Put a different way. Um, James Wilson's from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has about as many free people as Virginia, probably more voters because it has lower property qualifications. If you just have direct election, Pennsylvania is going to loom as large as Virginia. But thanks to the electoral college system, Virginia gets to count its slaves, albeit at a discount, three-fifths, but Virginia has way more clout in the electoral college than Pennsylvania because it gets to count its slaves. So Madison here is being, again, an advocate of Virginia's interests, really. Now he purports to say, oh, I'm I'm okay with direct national election, um, but he's signaling to everyone else at the Philadelphia Convention from the South that this is a deal breaker uh, for them. So now here's why I don't rely wholly on that. Um, Lentz poo-poos this. He downplays this evidence, and I think wrongly. 
So, um, um, but, um, and he tends to focus on the Philadelphia Convention. I acknowledge that the Philadelphia Convention is secret. Not everyone at the time understands all of this. I do say, what? The logic, forget just this little uh, debate. Um, the logic of the words, which is three-fifths, gives Virginia a huge advantage, gives the slave holding South a huge advantage. That's just built into the structure. Second, even if the North doesn't completely understand that when ratifying the Constitution, because the, the slaveocracy understands slavery better, just like big pharma understands uh, pharmaceutical prices better. So even if the Northerners, the Yankees, don't fully understand that when asked to ratify the Constitution, everyone sees, they, they did ratify a Constitution that um, was pro-slavery thanks to three-fifths. That's just the logic of the system. And everyone in America saw the logic unfold when Jefferson beats Adams in 1800 because of three-fifths, and they changed the Constitution to fix other things, and not this, even as the Yankees up north are jumping up and down, hopping up and down, saying, this is not right. That, my friend, is what I mean when I say the electoral college is pro-slavery. And here's what it's not about, which are the standard stories. Oh, big state, small state. Well, America never divides big state, small state um, after the Philadelphia Convention. There's no important issue in American history ever that's had the big states on one side, small states on the other. California um, and New York today, for example, are on one side, and Florida and Texas are on a different side. So it's not big state against small state. Um, uh, uh, Rhode Island doesn't vote the same way as Wyoming, even though they're both small states. Um, um, so America doesn't divide big state, small state. It divides coast against the center, um, cities against the hinterland, and always north against the south. So it's not big state, small state. And, and if it was big state, small state, why is it that we have almost no small state presence in all of American history? Um, uh, uh, Zachary Taylor, um, Franklin Pierce, Bill Clinton, Joe Biden, that's it. Your early presidents are all coming from the biggest state, basically. Um, Virginia wins eight of the nine first presidential elections. Massachusetts wins the, the ninth, uh, John Adams. So the Virginia's the big winner because it's a big state with a lot of slaves, and James Madison would not be surprised by that. So it's not big state, small state. It's not because they don't believe in democracy. They put the Constitution to a vote. They allow you to vote for the, the House of Representatives, which you couldn't do under the Articles of Confederation. That's not what, the, the Electoral College is not a group of like, smart people substituting their judgment uh, for um, what the, 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 the voters want. It's never been that way from day one. That's not why we have the Electoral College. It's not because you know, they, that, that, that we need smart people to substitute their judgment for, for ordinary voters. It's not some balance between big state and small state. It's because of slavery. A couple of points. First of all, you know, you're saying that um, that the election of 1800 galvanized the North to want to change the Electoral College and get rid of three-fifths um, at some point. At, at um, least New England. Yes. And, and, and the suggestion is that it galvanized the North in a way that it was not galvanized at the time of the, of the Constitutional Convention. But, of course, the difference now is that the Constitutional Convention um, took place under one rule of voting, but now, to amend the Constitution, you would have got, had to have gotten you know, a, a certain number of states, but, you, um, but, uh, but, in, but to pass it through uh, Congress, you, know, you have to get... Uh, it's malapportioned because of the three-fifths rule. So, you're, you're, so it's you're, that you're, much you're, harder to get is, it through Congress. This is the second point 
this is the second time, Andy, that you've made a really good point about the amendment rules. It's not just that the constitutional rules aren't great, but the amendment rules sometimes compound the difficulty. For 1808, you can't even amend that. Um, even if you did get two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states in, say, 1800 or 1801, the Constitution says you can't change the 1808 um, rule and, 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 and um, uh, allow for Congress to abolish the international slave trade earlier. Um, even for things where you can amend the thing as a pra- um, before 1808, as a practical matter, are you going to be able to do so? Um, because, actually, the, the system... Um, is giving the slaveholding South extra clout in the House of Representatives. And you need two-thirds of the representatives, and, and three-fifths is giving the, the, the slaveocracy extra clout in that. And you need two-thirds, and, and, um, and you need um, uh, three-quarters of the states. And are the extra votes in the House of Representatives, um, and the presidency for that matter, going to influence, for example, the path of territorial expansion? Um, so if you start adding southern states, um, um, and, and you do so because you got a president who's picked thanks to three-fifths and a House of Representatives that's biased thanks to three-fifths, well, maybe that's going to mean that you're going to have new states come in um, uh, from the southwest, slave states, and that's going to affect then the, your prospects for constitutional amendment and const- composition of the Senate, all the rest. There are all these feedback loop mechanisms, and this is the second time where you said, oh, pay attention also to whether we can change these rules easily, whether an abolitionist North is going to be able to modify um, this system. And the answer is not so easily, and that's why in the end we do get some constitutional amendments, but only after a cataclysmic civil war um, in which the North prevails by force of arms, and then actually certain southern states are not allowed to be represented in Congress um, until they let blacks vote and uh, r- r- ratify um, various amendments. Um, so it's another so, argument that the Constitution is pro-slavery because you're going from a situation where this didn't exist, where you're drafting the Constitution under one set of rules, and then you have the Constitution imposing its own rules, and those rules make it harder, not easier. So that that seems to me may, would, would be part of the definition of a pro-slavery uh, it, document. It, so It would, um, and it's a very nice point. And again, Sean focuses too much, to my, for my taste, on secret Philadelphia conversations as recorded by Madison, who actually, Mary Sarah Bilda has argued, may, uh, may have actually um, published a somewhat self-serving account of um, uh, what happened at Philadelphia many, many years after the fact. Okay, so we've talked about um, uh, whether the Constitution is generally pro-slavery or not. Um, And we've talked about the specifics of the Electoral College and the ways in which it was pro-slavery, both um, uh, uh, at Philadelphia, uh, in the the composition of the Philadelphia Plan, um, and especially um, in the wake of the election of 1800 and the adoption of the 12th Amendment. Um, and on both of those issues, my view is at odds with Professor Wilenz's. Here's one final thing. It's a much, much smaller thing. Um, but he says something about Andrew Jackson and Andrew Jackson's veto message of the bank that I respectfully disagree with. And I think there may be a pattern to our disagreement. So that's why this third thing is interesting. In a book that 
Professor Wilentz published in 2005 a, a slender little volume uh, uh, in a series on Amer the American presidents. Uh, 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 John Wilentz in, in this book, um, which is entitled Andrew Jackson, page 82, about Andrew Jackson's uh, veto message, vetoing a renewal of the U.S. Bank. The message offered a manifesto of Jackson's social and political philosophy as it had developed through the first years of his presidency. Jackson's strict Jeffersonian reading of the Constitution led him to deny the bank charter's legitimacy on grounds similar to those Jefferson himself had taken in opposing Hamilton's original Bank of the United States in 1791. Congress simply lacked the explicitly rendered powers to devise a national bank of this sort. And it's a short uh, book, and so maybe that was just a little bit of a hiccup in his formulation, but that's precisely wrong. Um, as I say at page 609 of my most recent book, and it's, uh, the words that made us in its chapter entitled Jackson, this is what Jackson's veto message explicitly says. This is a quote. That a bank of the United States competent to all the duties which may be required by the government, might be so organized as not to infringe on the reserved rights of the states, I do not entertain a doubt. Jackson was not making Jefferson's argument that you couldn't have a bank, um, that there was simply no proper congressional power to create a national bank. He was objecting to certain specific features of the bank, and he wasn't making the broad Jeffersonian argument. Now, um, because I'm criticizing Sean Wilentz's formulation, I should mention that on my own, um, uh, in my own book, at that very page, I have a slightly stilted formulation of Jackson's veto message, and I actually correct that just a bit or tweak it in the um, extra endnotes um, uh, uh, to the book that are available on the uh, website that Andy and I have created, akilamar.com. Um, so you can see the slight elaboration um, if you want to take a look at those um, um, end notes. But why am I picking on such a trivial little thing? First, because Wilentz is an expert on Jackson. And so getting Jackson wrong in one of his most important constitutional statements is important. Um, but second, because maybe there's a pattern here. So here, this is my hypo There are two hypotheses. I know it has been said about... Sean, that he very much is a believer in today's Democratic Party and somehow thinks it's important to, to, for the legitimacy of today's Democratic Party to say nice things about Jefferson and Jackson, who are, the, in effect, the, um, um, some of the early founders of what will become today's Democratic Party. Now, I don't know why that would be. You know, um, um, today's um, Republican Party might be very different from Lincoln's Republican Party. I happen to think so. Um, today's Democratic Party might be very different from Andrew Jackson's Democratic Party. So why can't we criticize Jackson and still be good uh, Barack Obama, Joe Biden Democrats today? I've heard some people say that about um, uh, why uh, Willens is particularly um, enamored of, of, of Jackson and tends to be very generous toward him and, and Jefferson before him. I don't know. Uh, um, Here's a different theory. Wilentz is a proud Princeton person. He went to Columbia and Yale. And Princeton's a preeminent founding figure is 
James Madison. Uh, and James Madison is joined at the hip by, uh, to Thomas Jefferson. And Wolins is tending to just go easy on Madison, who said stupid things about a bank. And Jefferson, who said stupid things about a bank. Um, and they look less stupid if you think Jackson is repeating them. Um, and Jackson is simply saying the same thing that Jefferson and Madison did, which is there's, there's no federal power. Jackson isn't saying that. Remember, I've argued in previous episodes and in the book itself that the Supreme Court unanimously repudiates the Madison-Jefferson view on the bank in McCulloch versus Maryland and does so um, uh, even though the court is composed by people that, that include multiple justices appointed by the likes of Jefferson and Madison themselves, Joseph Story, William Johnson, and others. Um, so um, I've argued, boy, if Jefferson was really right, then jo George Washington was wrong in signing the bank bill, but he did sign it. A mind as pure as intelligence this country can boast and never regretted it. So Jefferson was a doofus on the bank, in my view, and so was Madison, um, and um, and they look, um, and that's why Washington reputed them, and Marshall and McCulloch reputed them, and of course Hamilton um, uh, reputed them, and the entire unanimous Marshall Court reputed them, and that that vision, which makes Jefferson look not so good, and Madison, the Princetonian, look not so good, that argument um, might be undercut if you say, well. Andy Jackson's a pretty considerable figure, and he's adopted and he's um, elected and re-elected by strong um, uh, 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 national forces, and and he agreed with Jefferson, um, and and so you might think, well, Jefferson is less uh, dumb than Akil is arguing, and Madison is less dumb than Akil is arguing on this issue, um, if Jackson really did agree with him, but he didn't. You see, his objection was much more narrow and fine-grained. So why does it matter? It always matters getting facts straight. Oh, to Akeel, it will especially matter getting facts straight about anything constitutional. But it also matters for reasons that we talked about last time, because getting McCulloch right means getting Sebelius right, getting Obamacare right, because those issues are actually connected, because they're about the scope of congressional power. So, um, you know, that that's internally consistent, but I will say that that uh, you know, as a as a reader of Professor Olentz myself, I had enjoyed his book, uh, The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, um, which I think was written about the same time as the Jackson book that you uh, quoted from, but is much more of a magnum opus. And uh, uh, you know, I remember reading this. This was one of the the first history books that I read in sort of my second wave of history reading <laughs> later in life. And really, uh, it's a wonderful book that uh, drew me in. Um, so I, I thank Professor Wolens for it. And I think he's a little more and, and it won the Bancroft. I mean, yes. it's a very well-respected book. So I think it, uh, you know, it's a little more measured. Uh, perhaps he had more more time or space, and I don't know. I don't want to speculate. But at any rate, let me read you a, a section from it um, on this this question. Um, we're talking about the veto message. Uh, some of its strongest statements appeared in its comparatively staid middle section on constitutional issues, contradicting those who charged that mere precedent had settled the constitutionality of the Bank of the United States, Jackson beckoned to past congressional and state court opinions against the bank. The Supreme Court's decision in McCulloch versus Maryland did not, Jackson asserted, cover, cover every aspect of the bank's charter. 
Moreover, he claimed, the executive, as a co-equal coordinate branch of the government, had the sworn duty to uphold the Constitution as it saw fit, regardless of the court. On various counts, the message depicted the bank as a privileged private institution that bypassed the authority of the state governments and enjoyed powers exceeding those granted the federal government. But surpassing all discussion of state rights was Jackson's assertion of rightful presidential power within the federal system, especially in relation to the Supreme Court. So um, then it goes on. But that's kind of a departmentalist uh, vision um, a little bit more measured. Uh, even that's, uh, you know, subject to interpretation, I think, in terms of its comments about states versus federal government. He may be, may be right, may be wrong, depending on how you read that. But I, at least he takes, he takes the measure of, of McCulloch versus Maryland there. I think that sounds like a better formulation. The thing, again, that I objected to most of all was the um, explicit claim in this... Um, you know, smaller, much more slender book on uh, Jackson that um, uh, J uh, uh, Jackson's strict Jeffersonian reading of the Constitution led him to deny the bank's charter, the bank charter's legitimacy, on grounds similar to those Jefferson himself had taken in opposing Hamilton's original Bank of the United States in 1791. Congress simply lacked the explicitly rendered powers to devise a national bank of this sort. Um, now, that's not quite true, unless you're putting a lot of emphasis maybe on the words of this sort, but then it's not actually Jefferson's objection. It's specific details about the bank and not the very concept of a bank itself. So maybe that was just a, a slightly awkwardly written sentence, and maybe um, we could, the editors wanted him to change something at the last minute. Who, who knows? But, but um, uh, just to repeat, Andy Jackson, in his veto message, explicitly conceded that Congress could create a bank. He just um, had a quarrel with some of the specifics of um, the particular bank bill that was presented to him. So I think this has been a quite an exhaustive review of, of uh, Professor Rolentz's, um take on a variety of things, and uh, I'm hopeful that he'll, he'll be uh, able to come on the podcast some point and tell us which one of these books uh, he real is is uh, he he prefers, um, and which interpretation, and uh, you know, and to hear his his answers, I, I tried to, rep, you know, represent his arguments in some cases, but uh, obviously he could do a much better job than I could. But anyway, and and remember, I, again, I don't know this to be true, but I have heard a rumor that he may be reviewing my book. So you know, I just reviewed some of his, and uh, he may be reviewing one of mine's. The nickname of uh, the New York Review of Books, where I've been told um, he, he's ag um, agreed to, to write um, uh, uh, a review of the words that made us, the, the, the affectionate nickname by, uh, 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 of the New York Review of Books is the New York Review of Each Other's Books, because often you've got these um, authors in a, in a kind of conversation with each other. Um, and, okay. Uh, All right, well, so we'll be back actually with a special extra episode before next week. Um, talking about uh, Yale's Constitution, and uh, I hope you'll tune into that because that should that should be lots of fun. And then on to the rest of the Ivy League. Thank you. <laughs>